Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning. I am Eric Kozatsky, Head of Municipal Strategy here at Bloomberg Intelligence and joined as always by my associate, Karen Altamirano. Municipal performance through the first four months of 23 has been a semi-welcome respite from the awful 22 that many asset managers had to contend with. Somewhat unsurprisingly though, the tax exempt market is still contending with the same challenges that somewhat define the sector, such as supply demand imbalances and municipal valuations that still seem overly rich until they violently unwind in the other direction, as we've seen of late. And while the sole exempt investors are fully strapped in and along for the ride, those who live in the crossover world can maneuver more adeptly around quote-unquote relative value. This month on Masters of the Universe, we're joined by one such investor, Wesley Pate from Income Rate. In his role as Senior Portfolio Manager, Wesley is focused on portfolio construction, sector analysis, and contributing to the investment decision-making process, specifically for private clients and taxable institutional portfolios. Wes, thanks for joining us this month. Um, we really appreciate the time. Yes, Thank thanks for joining us, Wesley. Thank so you. let's just sort of like dive into it. You know, obviously like you guys have a very different approach to the market from an investing standpoint, right? As we alluded to in the intro, you're not one of those solely strapped into the exempt landscape buyers. Talk to us a little bit about Income Re and their sort of approach to, you know, munis as an asset class. Yeah, happy to. So happy to talk about the approach with immunities and also how, you know, being able to be a crossover investor, especially in today's market, is just becoming incrementally more and more important. So, you know, kind of the quick overview of income research's approach. First thing I would note is we're, we're duration neutral. So we don't seek to add value from trying to take predictions of interest rates. In our opinion, getting both the direction and magnitude of interest rate changes on a consistent basis is nearly impossible. Instead, we'd rather unearth value from a bottom-up security selection within munis, looking at you know credits that are inefficiently priced in today's market, looking at structures, especially um, various callables and puts uh, within the municipal market that are definitely cheap relative to, say, maybe a, a standard on-the-run bulleted bond. Uh, and then we also do have a crossover strategy that looks at really everything we do here at the firm, but looks at it through the lens of a taxable investor. So it looks at securitized bonds, corporate bonds, other government bonds, and really looks to compare those on a bond by bond and CUSIP by CUSIP basis to, to what we're seeing within the municipal market and accounts for all elements of taxation uh, in that process. I mean, obviously, there's a lot to unpack with that answer, right? And, and we'll sort of kind of address that piece by piece. But I mean, just from a 10,000 foot view perspective, you know, what's your take on performance of munis this year? 22 stump. Let's just be perfectly honest about it. You know, we had a few good months at the end of last year. And I think a lot of the expectation was a big rebound. And look, on face value, you can't be terribly upset with like a 2.3% return so far. But what's your thought on that? Yeah, you know, I think that there's also a glass half full approach there. So, you know, to your point, 22 stunk. But I, I think if we really take a step back, we should in many ways be happy about that. 
And I, you know, and what I mean by that is there, there's a classic rule in fixed income. And that's if your time horizon is greater than your duration, you benefit from rising rates. And so, you know, I think if we were to really be honest with one another and think about most municipal investors, usually and typically speaking, they do have very long time horizons. So even though 22, to use your expression, stunk, it was a reset and arguably a very much a required reset, something that was actually, you know, long term, probably healthy for the market. Now, it came faster and more aggressive than I think what the market would have wished for. But ultimately, that puts everything into a better spot. And so looking at the reinvestment rates today versus, say, what we were experiencing just two years ago, you know, I, I don't think anyone was happy when they were getting a 50 basis point yield on their municipal portfolio. So, you know, even though it was tough to stomach and it was a bit of a roller coaster over the course of 22, ultimately that does leave investors in a better spot. And then also looking at the glass half full as well is how munis did compare to really just every other asset class. Looking at intermediate munis versus similar duration treasuries and corporates, munis outperformed treasuries by almost 200 basis points and corporates by almost 400. So, you know, even though it was a negative year, muni still there. There's a lot to be happy about with regards to new higher rates and also just how much the asset class really outperformed other alternatives. You know, I, I sort of tried to keep the silver lining approach with clients and just to reassure the point that coupon income was on sale last year. Right. And like to your point, if you were in it for the long haul, it really was an attractive opportunity set that was at play, especially sort of like in that September, October timeframe as we sort of hit that like peak rate period. I know you get this uh, question probably asked a lot and it's been quite, um, you know, rates recently have been quite volatile. But what is your outlook for for rates this year? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. It is one that we get a lot. Again, we we seek to keep overall duration neutral, which highlights that we're not. Uh, trying to necessarily predict interest rates going forward. So, you know, our our answer to that is oftentimes going to be, you know, really when we're thinking about duration or looking at rates, really we want to build more of an all-weather portfolio, not one that's looking to necessarily try to take advantage of a directional change in interest rates. Um, you know, ultimately we look at, you know, where the Fed is and forward-looking hikes from here. Um, you know, we don't necessarily think that we're going to see uh, meaningful levels of cuts on the follow, which, you know, some running world interest rate probability and other items would suggest. You know, ultimately, we expect to probably hover roughly in this sort of rate regime that we're in today. Um, and again, that really highlights so that we would not suggest, you know, delaying putting money into the market. You know, if we look at real rates, especially, I think real rates are one of the best indicators of overall relative value within fixed income. And that's true across all fixed income asset classes. But real rates, especially in the front and intermediate part of the curve, are quite attractive relative to long term uh, historical metrics. So, you know, I, I think, you know, taking a step back and, and reflecting on all that, I think we're mostly going to be rather range bound from here. Uh, but more importantly, I think, is the overall value relative to forward looking inflation continues to be attractive for the asset class. I mean, are you seeing any risk to persistent inflation impacting your portfolios at all? Um, you know, obviously, like we hear from a lot of clients that, you know, that's sort of one of those things they just can't quite quantify because they don't know when it's going to abate. And it seems to be a challenge for a lot of people right now. Yeah. So, the you know, whenever we think about persistent inflation, the, you want to sort of unpack it into 
various elements and the various impacts that it's going to have on the market. First is credit, you know, sort of thinking about, okay, what does inflation really do to municipal credit? And in general, you know, municipalities and government as a whole is oftentimes a benefactor of some inflation from a credit perspective. You think about what inflation does. Well, if it, if it drives uh, home values higher, well, municipalities collect property taxes, so it benefits them there. If it drives incomes higher um, you know, because of uh, labor rates, that ultimately is beneficial as municipalities uh, collect an income tax. If it drives the price of goods higher, they benefit from the sales tax collection. So, and then on the other side is the expenditures. Well, typically speaking, a resetting of expenditures for most municipalities is a much longer process. So they're actually seeing a lot of the benefits today in terms of revenue collection, but not necessarily seeing the more adverse side of it on the expenditures immediately. So, you know, today uh, this level of inflation has not been nearly as adverse for municipal credit as what it has been really for just about any other market. Uh, you look at the flow through and the adverse uh, scenarios it creates, especially in corporate credit or other elements of fixed income or even equity uh, markets. You know, municipal municipal credit is arguably the most immune, uh, at least in the near term, to the uh, impacts of inflation. So, you know, what it is doing though is it's also exacerbating some of the supply demand imbalances. As we see rates go up, we're you know going to incrementally see on the margin at least a little bit less in terms of debt issuance, um, just because of the cost of capital increasing. Uh, so it, it's in many ways exacerbating the the lack of supply in the market, uh, but it's definitely not adversely weighing on the overall credits of municipalities. I mean, it's it's interesting that your your view is pretty constructive, it feels like, when it comes to credit. And I, and I agree with you, right? On a historical basis, municipal credit's been pretty bulletproof. I don't know how else to really describe it. You know, but it's, to me, when I'm looking at this market right now, I see a lot of challenges shaping up that I've never seen in my career, right? And you pointed to inflation benefiting, um, you know, municipalities as far as like home price appreciation. You know, I think housing has been one of sort of the, the surprise issues of late. But, you know, on the flip side of that, you have what's going on in the commercial space. And, you know, I sort of think in the back of my mind, you know, could there be challenges to tax appeals coming through on some like large commercial properties or municipalities that are really heavily dependent on, you know, office parks or malls or things like that, that have really taken a value beating? You know, what are your takes on that? Yeah, so it's a really good point. And differentiating between residential real estate and commercial real estate is growing in terms of its importance because the headwinds that face those two asset classes are very, very different today. You know, one of the things, though, that we would point to is just how long it takes to, to reset those values. I think the classic example is, you know, if you think about some of the, the limitation laws that exist across our country that limit the amount of year over year increases in terms of the rate for taxation on property, is very important. So for example, you know, we as a firm, we're located in Massachusetts. We have Proposition two and a half that limits the amount of year over year increases in property taxes. So you can see a run up in values where taxes do not necessarily keep pace. Uh, we've definitely seen that with some of the laws that exist in California and several other states as these have been enacted over the course of the last, you know, better part of really, you know, coming up on almost four decades now. And so those laws have really limited some of the upside to revenue collection. But here we are today. And I'd say, well, this is also going to 
limit some of the downside. You know, uh, the best example is sort of looking back during the crisis. If you look at the areas of of the market and the areas of the country that experienced the the worst uh, pricing correction for housing, you know, you saw parts of the the nation where housing fell seventy percent. Well, you didn't see property tax collections fall seventy percent. The reason being is they didn't have the same run up that those property values did initially, and therefore they didn't experience the same decline. So, you know, we're the, just as much as the muni market trades at a lower beta than it does to the than the treasury market, I think in many ways you also see the changes in credit trade at a much lower trajectory. So oftentimes upsides are are less meaningful or, or much slower to be realized, and that's also usually the case on the downside as well. So you know I think there is an element; it is going to be a headwind certainly going forward. But the cracks that do exist in the system where we're going to see it weighing on overall commercial properties are not going to flow through one to one to the municipal market, just like they didn't flow through one to one on the upside. Let's stick with the topic of, of credit risk, right? Because it's, it's super interesting to me, all the different dynamics that are setting up right now. So, you know, we talked about housing, we talked about commercial real estate. Let's talk about recovery in cities, right? You're, you're based in Boston. You know, are you seeing the, the same sort of COVID absenteeism of foot traffic in the cities that we're seeing, you know, in Philadelphia uh, and New York? Absolutely. The, the city is, it's, you know, wonderful to see it, you know, filled up on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, but it's, it's definitely not filled up during the week. Um, and that does have impacts. It, it impacts the demand for labor. You think about, you know, all the fast uh, or food service industries that that exist throughout the city. You know, they're booming on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and it's sort of a ghost town oftentimes on Friday across most cities. You know, and it does play through. It does have long term impacts. Um, you know, but that said, you're starting to see a uh, sort of a uh, an adoption or an adaptation, I should say, to what this little bit of a new normal looks like. That said, every single week, I think we're seeing an increase in foot traffic. You're starting to see a return more and more. Uh, there's going to be, you know, I think you can make a good argument that says, you know, from here, the amount of in-office and office utilization will continue to climb. You know, when we think about and we look at office property utilizations and we talk with some of our CMBS analysts, we you know, they look at card swipes or the amount of um, the amount of times you're actually seeing entrance into the office. We're north of 50 percent of where it was back prior to COVID. So you're starting to see a rebound. It is coming back. There is big daily differentiations, uh, but, you know, it, it is going to still be a long term recovery. That said, you know, the overall labor supply, it's it's, you know, even if um even if you're in three or four days a week, that really doesn't mean offices can meaningfully reduce their overall footprint uh, or their overall commercial real estate needs. So, you know, I would say we've, we're recovering from a very low bottom. And that said, though, going forward, we're still going to continue to see more upside, more strength from where we are today than where we were, say, a year ago. I keep poking at you. I'm trying to find a hole in what you don't like for credit. So we're gonna we're gonna sort of keep pulling on that string. So let's just tease that out, right? Less people coming into the cities, less people coming into the office with frequency. You know, obviously the implication is less people spending in local economies, right? So what does that 
you know, what does that mean for you in terms of the knock-on impacts for sales tax collections um, and just, you know, supporting local businesses and the health of those going forward? Yeah. So it's a great point. And then, you know, if we want to sort of uh, really tear into where the, the arguments start to unfold, it's actually not so much in credit, but rather in terms of valuations. And I, and I know we'll shift to that shortly. You know, but I think one of the things you would look at there is look at the overall savings rates. So just because money's not being spent, say, as frequently, you know, grabbing a, a salad or for lunch, it's still being spent in the system. Uh, savings rates are not going up in any sort of meaningful fashion. But instead of spending money every single day in the city, whether it be commuting into it, you know, paying for parking or whether it be, you know, eating out at a, at a lunch spot, Instead, it's going towards other expenditures, you know, and, and if you look it's around going to at Costco for me, that's where it, it's going. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're, we're a fan of, of Costco as well. And so it's definitely a large line item in our budget. Um, but, you know, the you know, whenever we really look around and think about that and we see, well, you're seeing a lot more discretionary spending, if you will. You're seeing more people take vacations. You're seeing more and more folks putting money into their homes with uh, various upgrades and renovations. So just because money's not being spent on one spot, it is being instead spent on another. And then if you, you know, sort of take that same view, well, you know, money that's not being spent for lunch, it's being spent somewhere else on another uh, discretionary item. Well, there is usually sales tax on that other discretionary item. If it's an improvement to the home, well, there's, sales taxes that are being collected on the the materials that need to be purchased there's income taxes that are going to be assessed on the construction workers and the laborers that are actually doing the work and then there's going to be an increase in property taxes given the reset higher to valuations of the property so you know money not spent in one area is not necessarily a deadweight loss or an, or an economic um you know one for one decline oftentimes it's rather a shift to so one one negative is oftentimes a shift to a positive elsewhere. Yeah. What's your outlook on public transit? You know, we've seen a lot of headlines about um, MTA, uh, Bay Area Transit, asking for more funding from from states. Yeah. yeah. So that's a great question. And that's definitely, an, you know, and this is important to note is that, you know, as positive as we are on overall municipal credit, there are still pockets of weakness. There are going to be areas of the market that are not benefiting from the same sort of uplift that other that other parts are. You know, we look at some of the smaller rural hospitals and, and that's going to be another one that where you're really feeling the pinch. Public and mass transit is absolutely one of them. You know, utilization rates today are meaningfully lower. Uh, they're recovering at a much slower pace than what we are seeing for overall office utilization. And so that makes the, the overall arguments much more difficult. I think if we were to look around at the MTA, the MBTA, and, and really every mass transit system across the country, you know, whether it be, you know, those couple, or if you look at BART or, you know, all, just about any others, as utilization is down, they, those entities were already oftentimes struggling from an overall mismatch in the revenues and their expenditures will now... The revenues are not recovering, but yet the, the ongoing maintenance and needs of the systems do not necessarily come down just because ridership is down. And so it's it's very much exacerbating some of the what was even before COVID, some rather tough decisions that they were having to make uh, in order to balance their overall operations. But it's a it's a part of the market that we do think is going to continue to struggle. 
from a municipal credit perspective, though, you know, again, you know, oftentimes taking the silver lining is that most um, most bonds in the municipal market from an issuer perspective that are tied to mass transit aren't actually tied to the overall operations of this transit system, but rather are tied to some other tax collection mechanism. So here in Massachusetts, the MBTA, for example, the bonds that are uh, backing it, some of them are actually have an element of a property tax, but a lot of times they're sales taxes. If you look in the Atlanta area, MARTA, uh, expansion for MARTA is all driven by sales tax collections in the primary counties that MARTA serves. Uh, New York is the one that's a little bit interesting. You do have an income tax component for some elements. And then you also have the fare box revenues. Uh, the fare box revenue credits are those that are going to be most exposed. But, you know, looking at BART and most of the others, usually from a credit profile, you're less linked to the ongoing operations and the ongoing revenues and the expenditures, but rather much more tied from a credit perspective to what are maybe sales tax collections or some other elements. So, you know, uh, some adverse scenarios and headwinds that might exist for overall mass transit might not necessarily have a singular correlation to an adverse uh, an adverse issue with the credit that would be tied to to that issuer. Yeah, it's almost like oh, it's like headline risk in a sense, you know, when you sort of unwind it. Well, and that's usually the and that's oftentimes the case with the municipal market. One of our favorite uh, expressions is the municipal market is just loaded with examples where the perception of risk is different from the reality of risk. And I think this is a perfect example. The, the perception of risk is all mass transit systems are going to struggle. The reality of the risk is that sales taxes that are tied to them are not uh, being adversely impacted and therefore bondholders are not being impacted. Um, you had mentioned earlier rural hospitals. Um, what are some of the other, other areas where you see that you're less less constructive on? So, you know, th those smaller hospitals continue to be one area. You know, away from there, from a, you know, the areas of the market that were less constructive start to really rely more on, you know, looking at various structures. And, you know, so, for example, one might be uh, the housing sector. You know, when we look at... You know, we do find a lot of value in sort of some of those multifamily housing sectors that exist. Um, and we're definitely seeing a little bit of an increase, especially in 2021. It's pulled back a little bit this year in terms of issuance. Uh, but, you know, because a lot of those bonds come at par, uh, you start to take on other elements of risk. You start to take on de minimis risk. Uh, if you don't properly uh, evaluate the principal amortization classes of those securities, you might be taking on prepayment risk or extension risk. So, you know, there's a lot of risks that exist in this market that, that might not necessarily be credit risk. Again, with some of those smaller rural hospitals, we do view it oftentimes as credit risk. But, you know, th th there's multiple risks that do exist in the market, liquidity risk, extension risk, convexity related risk. Um, but, you know, credit is arguably the, the element of the market that is most uh, well insulated right now from the broad risks that do exist. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the market really got a lesson in convexity risk last year. Um, and we're in the midst of doing a survey now. And one of our questions was, do you think the muni market as a whole sort of, you know, learned a meaningful lesson in, in terms of, you know, how little protection low coupon structures offer, you know, in a rising rate environment, because I think for a long time, you know, at least for the last 40 some years, right, we've been in like a rate bull market, if you look at the trend chart. Um, so I don't think people gave it that much thought. 
you know, so is structure something that you guys are paying extra attention to right now? It's something we're paying extra attention to and also something we're, we're finding extra value in. Um, I would say, you know, taking a step back and thinking about structure across various elements, maybe starting with callable bonds since we are on the topic of convexity, uh, which is a topic I'm always happy to talk about. Um, you know, the, so yes, the market did get a lesson there, um, you know, and, but there's, you know, many elements. The convexity profile of the municipal market is still, you know, far more attractive than what the convexity profile is, say, of the, the fixed rate mortgage market. Uh, so if you look at the extension risk that municipals experienced, it, it was a small fraction of what you saw across some of the other asset classes. So, you know, looking at... You mean on a notional basis? I mean, on the, the number of years of the extension of the index is how I would look at that. So if you take the, if you look at uh, the mortgage market, the, you know, durations, you know, shifted from in the twos up to, you know, six, almost six years. So uh, well more than doubling. And we didn't see anything even remotely close to that in the municipal market. And in fact, even at the individual security level, uh, it was rare that we were seeing anything even close to that. So think about a a par price 30 non-call 10, you definitely saw some extension there in durations, but it's, but it didn't double. It, it, it was rare to see um, near the level of extension that we were, that other asset classes were experiencing. Yeah. You know, but that the convexity lesson is one that I, I hope the market will take note of. Uh, that said, you know, you're in some elements of the market right now, you're really getting handsomely compensated for taking on some small convexity risk. Uh, one of the one area of the market that we see the most value in is actually that call structure today, say the sort of 14, 15 year non-call 10. So new issue callable bonds that have the call option in 10 years that mature in say 14 to 15 years. It's amazing to look at the um, to look at the muni curve right now. You know, you pull up triple you know, A and hit go on Bloomberg and and you look at the shape of the curve. Well, fives, tens is perfectly flat. There's uh, it's about one basis point move from the five year to the 10 year. But then you look at the 10 year to the 15 year and it's almost 60 basis points. You know, the the curves are supposed to be logarithmic. They're supposed to go up quickly in the in the front end and then start to flatten out as you go longer. Well, here we're developing, you know, I guess some sort of snake pattern that where it's really flat and then suddenly it starts jumping up and then flattening out once again. You're really able to capture a lot of additional yield with a very small amount of convexity risk. What we would say is that one of the most well compensated structures right now is taking a very small amount of convexity risk, but making sure you're not coupling it with credit risk. So what we mean by that is not necessarily buying a lot of triple Bs in that structure, but rather when you're buying high single A and, and low and low double A type names where you're getting a, a very, uh, very attractive curve creation on top with a spread element on top of that, you know, you really are able to produce a portfolio and bonds that from a uh, compensation for risk or yield relative to the overall duration and convexity risk is extremely positively symmetric in terms of its risk reward profile. And that's one of the elements of the market or one of the areas of the market, excuse me, that we would say has the most value right now. Credit spreads are on the tighter side. You know, so we're saying we're seeing much more value in structure than we are going down in credit right now. Well, it's interesting. You know, 
with the curve taking on such an abnormal shape, you know, what we're seeing, and we, we do a monthly sort of look under the hood at, you know, the different credit buckets for the, the Muniag, you know, we're seeing some almost like inversion of, you know, spread, you know, per credit bucket that we haven't seen in, in typical cycles, right? Um, you know, where you have double A's, you know, providing more spread than a single A. And, you know, I, I don't know if you're seeing sort of those same one-off opportunity sets as well. We are seeing it, especially when, you know, when you are able to add a element of structure to it. When, you know, one area of the market that we really like is some of those double A type issuers that might be issuing some par price puts. Uh, for example, you know, when you're able to pick up oftentimes 50 or 60 basis points above the AAA curve for, you know, only a very small amount of credit risk. And really what you're taking on there is just de minimis risk possibilities. But when you have a long final maturity, then your de minimis risk, uh, you know, starts to fall as well. So, you know, there, we're seeing some of those inefficiencies as a active manager that thrills us. The, you know, whenever... Uh, bond differentiation starts to become more elevated. That, you know, bond differentiation is what creates opportunities. And so when we see those mismatches, those are the very opportunities that we're going to be most excited to really participate in because that's where value creation starts to unfold. So when you do see those mismatches, it is an opportunity. This is not normal. And, you know, these are the exact sort of time periods where uh, taking advantage of, of those inefficiencies is where it's most attractive to move money to. How are you how are you screening for these opportunities in a market that's that's so illiquid? Price discovery can be can be very difficult. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So you know, even though you know price discovery is difficult, price discovery exists really uh, really regularly. Uh, so you're not. Comparing, you know, necessarily bond A or issuer A to other bonds of the issuer, but it's very much a mosaic approach. You have to be able to have the experience to to look to know how to bucket securities and how to compare them to other alternative options. And so, even though we might not necessarily be able to build out a perfect uh, curve of an issuer, there's always going to be a lot of readily available comps in the market. Um, and so. You know, that, that's one of the elements is it's easy to say, you know, price discovery is is difficult to achieve. And we would we would kind of take a different side of that. And we would say it's it's not always as obvious because, you know, for example, if you're looking at the corporate bond market, you can say, well, you know, issuer A has, you know, 10 or 20 deals outstanding and we can create this perfect curve to sort of see where it should trade. In the municipal market, that doesn't exist, but you have 58,000 issuers of municipal bonds. Uh, you know, the ability to bucket and look at some of these elements and, and know what compensation is supposed to exist for various items. So whether it be lower coupon, whether it be credit, whether it be, you know, state, state of domicile. So it takes a mosaic approach that really just comes with experience and a lot of communication across the team. Yeah, I'm, let's sort of dive into the process at Incomery for a second, right? So just as we were getting prepared for this call, we we're poking around on the website and, you know, I thought it was interesting, right, on the sort of like what we do page. You had a really nice graphic that showed sort of like four, like I want to say like main competencies from an investment standpoint, right, uh, or different strategies um, sort of spanning along the yield curve, anything going from like that cash short opportunity set, right, to long. But I thought it was interesting, though, is that in that core focus area, right? That was the only one that sort of had that line item of tax sensitive such 
crossover. And I just wanted you to sort of walk me through that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, we're able to build a, a crossover strategy in any element of the yield curve. It just so happens to be the, the overwhelming demand for the product, um, you know, since we've started doing it north of 15 years ago, uh, has really been focused in that sort of intermediate to core type duration space. Uh, we, we do manage a little bit of crossover assets also on the front end uh, and actually starting to see an, an increase in demand for crossover in the front end, which, you know, probably isn't surprising given the, the inversion of the yield curve. You know, but the, the real attractive facet of that is when you start to think about a core type duration, you've really opened up the entire investment grade space. Um, you know, every single bond that can be issued in the securitized space or the, the corporate space, you know, and, as, and then municipals, it, you're really, instead of trying to say one asset class is cheap for another, we start comparing it at the bond level. So we're not saying you know, munis are cheap versus corporates. Instead, we're saying bond A is cheap versus bond B. And we get, we enter into a lot of markets where, you know, you can actually see different asset classes that are very attractive in different parts of the curve. Um, you know, right now, munis are rather rich really across the curve, but we've entered into many environments where securitized was really cheap in the very front end of the curve. And then as you went a little bit longer, corporate bonds were much cheaper than, than other alternatives. But then as you started getting north of about six, seven, eight years of maturity, munis looked really attractive. And that's the, those are the environments where not taking a singular asset class approach tends to unearth a lot of value. Uh, right now, it's also very tax rate dependent. And say institutional portfolios at a lower tax rate, we're going to have a much lower exposure to munis. But in the high net worth space, as you add duration, munis still have a very good element of attractive valuation. So we're able to unearth a lot of value in taxable bonds. And everything is looked at through the lens of a taxable investor. Taxable bonds are really cheap, say, inside of about seven years. But remember, we talked about that uniqueness of the muni yield curve as you got beyond 10 years. So what are we able to do? Well, we can construct a portfolio that has a lot of value from corporates and securitized bonds in the very front end. And then on the other side, really buy a lot of those very cheap, say, 13 to 15 year maturity with a 10 year call new issue type munis take on a modest amount of convexity, but add a lot of yield relative to the duration. So the real goal is to, I guess you could say, sort of have your cake and eat it too, because you can add yield relative to a singular asset class uh, approach. And also you tend to reduce the overall volatility. As you add duration of munis, munis tend to trade with a lower beta. Well, that's where usually the bulk of the volatility will come from is in the more highly durated components of the portfolio. So we reduce volatility, reduce risk and add yield. And so you know, a crossover strategy today, I think you can make a very good argument as is just as is probably more attractive than really where it has been in a very long time, just because the, the differentiation across not only bonds, but also across asset classes is so much greater today. With the drop in supply, are you finding it a particularly you know hard pain point right now to sort of execute any of these strategies and size, especially on the taxable muni side where issuance is off by like 35, 40% year over year? Yeah, so you know, supply is an amazing thing to look at in the muni market right now. I, I was looking at some data uh, just a couple of weeks ago and was curious about just how much has the muni market grown really over the course of the last 10 to 15 years. 
And I, I think you'll find this stat uh, unique in that over the course of the last 15 years, the size of the municipal market has grown by about 50 percent. The size of the uh, the size of the aggregate market, uh, so really combining corporate, securitized, and treasuries, has grown by almost four hundred percent. So munis have just not kept pace with the supply of other fixed income asset classes. So, uh, so to answer your question, yes, it, it is uh, you know at times quite difficult to move. Um, it's it's become an asset class that's much easier to sell than it is to buy. Uh, garnering, um, garnering market exposure in the municipal side of things, you have to become incrementally more and more selective uh, because the availability of bonds is, is going to be more limited. Um, you know, on the taxable muni front, you know, it definitely pains me and makes me sad to think that, you know, when I look back to 2020, almost 180 billion of issuance to see that number fall to, you know, almost 30 billion. You know, it does get very difficult. Uh, that said, there's a natural demand for those bonds. So similar to exempts, it's very easy to sell uh, most times as long as you're looking at more liquid issuers or larger issuers. But the ability to um, to move back into the asset class is what's getting more and more difficult. So, I mean, obviously, all of that combined, I mean, I would imagine that you guys have to sort of set a natural you know, limit on how many line items you want to take on just from a credit monitoring standpoint. I mean, do you have size restrictions or minimums in place of, you know, sort of like a minimum block that you guys want to see to sort of start credit work on something? Yeah, it's a great question as to the overall process. And, you know, to make a efficient municipal uh, product, uh, you know, you really have to take a step back and, and really do a lot of planning. Fortunately, we've been, you know, managing municipal assets for north of two decades here. So there's a lot of experience in doing so. You know, one of the first things we look at is we really try to screen out credits where say that the deal size is, is below 30 or $40 million. And so the reason for that is typically speaking, you're taking on some meaningful liquidity uh, risks there. And usually there's not appropriate compensation in terms of spread for doing so. So we've really built a sort of a core credits, if you will, that really is about 300 or so different credits. And so 250 to 300 credits make up the overwhelming majority of the exposures in the portfolio on the municipal side. So, you know, it, it allows us to maintain liquidity and allows us to have a manageable level of credits to maintain the due diligence on. And again, you know, kind of going back to one of the earlier comments, we see a lot more value right now in structure. And so we're able to buy a lot of these core credits that have attractive liquidity profiles. And, you know, instead, we're able to find the value by buying it at the right spot on the curve or buying a put of that issuer as opposed to necessarily adding a lot more credits and a lot more smaller credits, which would also have an adverse liquidity impact on the portfolio. Yeah. We know that um, sustainable investing has been a focus for your firm since inception. Can you talk to us a little bit about your view on ESG? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's something that's very near and dear to us. It, you know, ESG is in many ways, it's also a risk mitigation process. You know, I think if you look across elements where, you know, credit has gone awry in the municipal market, you can point to several either E, S or G or several of the two or several of the three apologies um, that were not necessarily aligned to the interest of bondholders. And so making sure that ESG is part of our overall credit process is important. Uh, it allows us to ensure that, you know, where our investors and where our clients want to have 
an impact in the overall um, market or an impact to the overall um, global system in terms of how they invest is can be reflected. But also it serves to limit some of the downsides that could exist in the portfolio. So, you know, in our opinion, good ESG work is perfectly aligned with good credit work. Uh, it's always been part of the process, even before it was necessarily um, immediately called ES ESG. Uh, but it's it's something that, in our opinion, should not change. Good credit work should reflect risk mitigation, and risk mitigation should be a product of ESG. I know you've probably been asked this question a lot, but are you concerned at all with the current political environment and the laws that have been passed taking a negative stance on sustainable investing? So, you know, I, I think what we would say there is investors should be allowed to to make that determination. Clients should be allowed to make that determination. As a man, as an asset manager, our job is to have good communication with our clients, making sure that if they want to have, you know, whether it be a, a carbon footprint or some other element of ESG perfectly reflected in their portfolio, that we do so. Um, you know, a lot of those elements, though, that are being passed, some of the laws that are being passed right now really are driven by, um, you know, state or large city investments. And, you know, their it's, you know, their constituents elect the local officials to, to reflect their views. And so, you know, I, I don't know that's necessarily a, a bad thing to see this. It is really a, a reflection of the people, the people that elect local officials. They're there to represent them. So, you know, if those local officials pass laws that, you know, are if they're uh, consistent with what the views are of the people that they that they uh, represent, then we think that's OK. You know, that's one of the beauties of, of municipal credit is municipal credit is in many ways a reflection of, you know, of the people. And, you know, it's, you know, individual people elect officials that then make financial decisions. Uh, and in this case, they're making decisions around, you know, what ESG should be reflected in the portfolio. So, you know, we never love to see politics make its way into uh, driving some of these decisions. But, you know, in, in many ways, it is inevitable. A lot of the money that's being impacted is public money. And so, you know, having public officials make the determination of how public money should be invested isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. You talked about taxes earlier, um, and, and I know we're getting tight on time, so we're just going to try and do two more questions. But, uh, you know, we have some sunsetting of the you know, Tax Cuts and Job Act provisions coming up in 2025, and we have obviously a presidential election in 2024. Either of those, um, you know, a, a risk or an opportunity to, you know, the, the thought and investment process for you guys? You know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so it, it, that's a really good question because the answer, especially on the first part, uh, some of the sunsetting provisions is very, very important as it relates to AMT. Uh, the, if you look at the spread basis right now on maybe say in the airport sector where that's the majority where AMT issuance comes from, AMT versus non-AMT bonds, that basis is very large. Um, you know, so that's the question of is that an opportunity or is that a risk? Um, and that basis grows as the maturity profile grows, which makes a lot of sense because as you start adding more years, you start to increase the, you know, the, the likelihood of seeing some sort of change to the overall AMT language. That, in our opinion, is one of the larger risks that does exist in the market. We actually don't necessarily view the, a potential change in leadership and a change in the presidency 
as having a, a meaningful risk to the market. And I think that's been that's played out, really, if you look at just about every presidential election for the last you know, 20 plus years doesn't really have a huge impact to the municipal market. But what does have an impact could be a sunsetting of some of the AMT provisions uh, that could actually have a rather large impact to some evaluations that we see in select asset classes and select sectors. I mean, so your thought is right now that AMT, you know, yield premium that buyers are getting are like a free snack since hardly anyone is subject to the tax. But you're saying, you know, if we revert full hog back to, you know, several million people being subject to it, you know, they're almost going to be captured in that penalty. Exactly. You know, the, the yeah. number of filers that file uh, or that were subject to AMT fell by almost 90 percent. Yeah, it's pretty wild. You know, it's exactly. Like and, million, yeah. like 200,000. It, yeah. So now it's it's very limited. So arguably, if the provisions stay in place, it's, you know, buying AMT bonds is a very attractive um, entry point. You're you're not taking on additional credit risk. You're taking on a small amount of liquidity differential, uh, but you're getting a lot of extra spread there. You know, but if those bonds were to suddenly become subject to AMT taxes or if the investor becomes subject to AMT, it has a meaningful change in the overall valuations. Uh, the the increase in taxation penalty does not nearly cover the spread component that you're picking up. So it looks great today, but a change in the provisions would really flip that uh, on its head and make it to look to be a very um, uneconomical investment investment from a tax perspective. All right, and just sort of wrapping up, you know, uh, last two questions. Most overrated Boston sports team, Celtics, Patriots, or the Red Sox? I'm going to pass. I love them all. Um, really? You know, it's, um, you know, I heard you say Philly earlier. I, I, I would say it's, you know, one beautiful thing about being in Boston is is all the championships that we've been able to, to take part of. So uh, I'm going to pass on that one and just say go Celtics for uh, the upcoming games. <laughs> All right, and last question: Dunkin' or Starbucks? Oh, um, you know, I, I know where I, I know that I live in Massachusetts, or know that our, we're located in Massachusetts, so I'm supposed to say Dunkin', uh, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't have Starbucks this morning. All right, I appreciate I appreciate the candor and honesty, I really do. All right, Wesley Pate, thank you for joining us. This has been an awesome conversation. Uh, Karen, thank you for being here as always. And join us next month uh, for Masters of the Universe. We will be joined by Matt Dalton from Bellhaven Investments. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.